This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 876, a conversation with Evan Skolnick. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 876. It's my conversation with Evan Skolnick. Uh, you might know Evan from his uh, you know run on New Warriors back in the, what I guess, early to mid-1990s. Uh, he's worked a lot in video games. Um, he's also taught. He's been an educator. He's done a lot of different things. Uh, I spent a lot of time in this interview, though, talking about, about, to him about his time at Marvel Editorial, because I'm always fascinated by that kind of uh, late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s editorial period and he was there for a, bun- a good chunk of it uh, and then he was also uh, writing New Warriors and other projects as well uh, which we get into during the conversation we also talk a little bit about his work in video games which is obviously taken up you know, really more of his life than his time in comics but um, obviously this is a comic podcast so I uh, really wanted to narrow in on some of the you know the stuff about working in editorial and some of the stories with the people he worked with etc. Good ones obviously we're not trying to do any character assassination here but it was, uh, it was great ch- ch- yeah, chatting with Evan uh, we actually talked for uh, a fair lo- a fair bit of time. Uh, I always it's always funny because I never know what to say when people are like, well, how, you know, how long do these usually go? And I'm like, I don't know, thirty minutes, three hours, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. So that's definitely what we ended up doing. We went over an hour, and it was a lot of fun to have Evan on the show. And uh, I think you're really gonna, going to enjoy his insights into Marvel editorial, uh, what it was like to you know take on a book like New Warriors, and also NFL Super Pro. We cannot forget that. Um, anyways, if you want to email the show, you can do so at uh, comic shenanigans at gmail.com write the show on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and listen to us on stitcher thanks again for downloading this episode and enjoy the conversation with evan skolnick enjoy evan welcome to the comic shenanigans podcast Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I always like to go back uh, with the first question to kind of ask, uh, you know, what was, how did comic books first in some way enter your life? Oh, um, it's kind of hazy. I mean, you know, growing up in the, in the seventies, it was kind of one of the only real entertainment forms aimed at kids. Right. I mean, we kind of take for granted today that there are, that there are channels focused on kids entertainment and, um, and whatnot, but but back then you basically had Saturday morning cartoons and comics. So I remember reading, uh, you know, superhero books, but also like um, you know Richie Rich and Hot Stuff and stuff like that. So uh, I wasn't what you call a, a, a collector. There really weren't collectors that many back then, anyway. But um, uh, and then I kind of fa- it kind of faded out of my life mm. as I got older um, and went to college, and then at some point. Um, I heard that they had changed Spider-Man's costume. <laughs> I was like, "What?" To black and white. I was like, "What?" I had I couldn't believe it. So it really got my attention, and I checked it out, and I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing. I couldn't believe that they had taken that big a risk, and I I was back in, and I began reading comics again, and um, kind of catching up with things I'd missed uh, in the uh, '80s, like Watchmen and Dark Knight, things like that, and. Um, and then when I was in uh, college, I just began thinking, gee, that'd be a fantastic thing to do because I was interested in writing and art. So mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of how it all fell together. 
Now, when you do start working at Marvel, and again, I, I always forget in my head, so you were uh, an editorial assistant, not an assistant editor, that came later, correct? That's right. I came in at the, at the, at the kind of the bottom rung of the editorial department, not really even working in an editorial office. I was I was essentially another assistant to the, the editor-in-chief and the executive editors, essentially supporting them and the, and the entire editorial staff in various ways. Um, but not really working on any particular uh, series. So when you when you come on, sorry, I'm trying to remember the exact chronology. Was it DeFalco or was it Shooter still? It was DeFalco. So what was it like working for DeFalco? Um, well, I do I mean, I worked. I mean, technically, I worked for him, but I worked for the whole department. And, yeah. Um, his, his his secretary, uh, or uh, was uh, Suzanne Gaffney, and I think I'm pretty sure I reported to her, and so. Uh, it was it was fine. I mean, it, you know, I, I wanted to move up the chain. I wanted to write comics. I wanted to, um, you know, be more involved in the creative process. But um, you know, I didn't I didn't have a lot of you know direct uh, contact with him in my day to day. At that uh, kind of formative period, like who were like obviously you eventually would become an assistant editor and an editor and then eventually writing comics as well. But who from from an editorial standpoint? Who did you find had kind of the biggest impact on shaping the type of editor that you would become? Well, you know, I was I was there during that big uh, you know expansion, the boom, mm-hmm. and so the Marvel editorial office is kind of inflated. You know, it got bigger and bigger, and so you got a chance to really see lots of different styles uh, of editing comics and handling freelancers. And I tried to learn what I could from different people, and I also. You know, sometimes would learn how I how I didn't want to be, uh, and how I didn't want to run you know my office when I if I was ever going to have one. But I got to work with uh, Sid Jacobson fairly early on in my assistant editor experience, and you know Sid was just this. Uh, he was so comfortable. He'd been doing it for so long, uh, and he and he was he was running the Star Comics line at that time, which mm. was the the comics aimed at, at younger readers, um, almost all licensed material. So Alf and uh, things like that. And um, I just, it was just so, he, he just had it down to a science, you know? It was just all, uh, you know, it was all uh, very uh, much um, comfortable and, uh, you know, easy. He looked, made it look easy. Um, and then uh, when Sid left Marvel, Fabian became my editor. Hmm. And he was coming from outside editorial, but he had obviously been doing some writing already up to that point. And, so he came in not having been an editor before. So in some ways, I had to kind of show him the ropes, at least in terms of the technical parts of the job. You know, this is how we assemble an issue. This is how we do this. Just kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts. But in terms of his vision, he had, he had an innate vision for editing. And, um, and so, I, you know, Fabian is one of the most important mentors of my life. I, so, 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 you know, I learned a huge amount from, from watching him, his instincts, for creative teams, you know, he just he, he he had the idea to have Evan Dorkin work on Bill and Ted, <laughs> and have you know, and, and gave Dan Slott his first opportunity to write a, a comic book story in Mighty Mouse, and so he, um, I learned so much from him, and got great advice from him also in terms of navigating uh, the political landscape uh, in the company because I really hadn't been very good at that up to that <laughs> up to that point, and and, and he was he was uh, very uh, good at just you know. Um, being conscious of, of 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 navigating that space, 
mm-hmm. and, and being aware that how people perceive you is, is important within, within that organization. It's not just based on the work you do. It, mm-hmm. it goes beyond that. And so he gave me some really good mentorship and guidance uh, along those lines that helped me a lot. It's interesting. You got to Fabian almost before I could because I was I was going to ask. Like it seems in every interview that kind of comes up with your comic book work, uh, he always ends up being like a very frequent kind of uh, supporting cast member in terms of his importance and how he's kind of in and around a lot of what you you kind of did with Marvel at this period. Um, and again, as you said before in other interviews, that you guys are also you know still friends and still close. How? And you kind of said that this is one of the most kind of important comic book relationships that kind of formed. Was it immediate with you guys? Did you guys kind of hit the ground running as and being very much in simpatico? Or was there kind of a, a getting to know you period where it was a little bit more awkward? Or was it right from the get-go? Well, we, we already knew each other because he, was, he had been working in uh, you know, the marketing department. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of interfacing with that. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, we already liked each other, and I think we had already been playing softball at some point together before <laughs> then, too. So uh, Fabian was a very well-liked person uh, in, in the, in the, in the uh, you know, organization um, for lots of reasons. And so we already knew each other and liked each other. And so, um, you know, I think, I think if it had been anyone else who came in and I had to train them to do the, the job, because I, I, honestly, I had, I had kind of pitched to, to take over the job myself. Mm. And um, and I was told I wasn't quite ready for that. So so if it had been anyone else that they had brought in to, for me to kind of show the ropes, I think I might have been resentful. Mm. But I wasn't. Um, it was it was we worked really well together, and he, you know, just showed me a huge amount of respect. And um, you know, we had a lot of fun. I mean, we were, you know, we had a lot of fun uh, in our office, and and. Um, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. So, and as you said, yes, he's a huge uh, mentor in my life, also a very good friend. So he he will always come up in these interviews about my college career because he's a very large figure in that career, and I owe a lot to him. It's interesting that you would succeed him on New Warriors, but also NFL Super Pro. Which one was the mo- which one was more <laughs> fun to su- succeed him on? <laughs> oh well, that's a pretty easy answer. I, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I was when I was working on NFL Super Pro, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't the only writer. I basically did a few issues after he uh, left that series, and um, you know, I was trying to get any work I could at that point. I was still kind of break trying to break in on the on the writing side, and that was not an easy thing to do. Um, and I hadn't really made it easy on myself by banging my head against the wrong door mm. for a long time. That that door being, I want to write a, my, I want to write a new series with my own characters, right? Mm. And that just wasn't going to happen. So um, I think that the super pro thing was at a time when I finally realized that I just need to grab whatever I can and, and, and write anything just to get myself uh, some credits and and show that I can do this and eventually get to the point where maybe I will be trusted with something uh, you know that's a, a little. Um, in a, in a more risky area like launching a new series or a new character so whereas with New Warriors you know that was obviously a very different situation I mean um, that was you know that was actually taking on a Marvel Universe series that they had been doing quite well for quite a while um, of course then the the bubble burst and all of the Marvel titles pretty much were, were, were you know hemorrhaging uh, sales figures mm-hmm. as the collectors moved away and um and so, when I when I came onto that title, obviously I was inheriting something that people were very passionate about. You know, Fabian and um, you know Mark Bagley and Derek Robinson had done so much with 
the concept and taken it in such a fantastic in fantastic directions that you know it's not filled some very big shoes mm-hmm. and there were lots of people when they heard that Fabian was leaving was like well I'm leaving too like the readers right a lot of mm-hmm. readers were like well this book he had defined that book and how could anyone come in and replace him right and I totally got that at the same time it was very frustrating to not have to have some people not give me a, a chance yeah um, so I did the best I could I, I, I you know I, I think I've said in other interviews that I think the reason I'm pretty sure the reason I got the book was not because um, the main reason I got it was, I think, because I wanted to continue the book more or less as it was running. In other words, I didn't want to totally destroy the team and, and, and kind of, I showed a lot of love for the, for the, for the series because I, I, I did love it. So whereas I got the impression that a lot of the other pitches that, that uh, Tom Brevoort, the editor, got when he sent out his um, requests for proposals, I got the impression that most of those other proposals didn't seem like they were being written by people who really liked the book as it was. Hmm. So, so that was, it was still, he was a huge responsibility. And, um, you know, I actually remember interrogating Fabian, uh, you know, about some, some plot threads he had left open for his, himself in the future. And I, I kind of got him to tell me what he had, had intended to do. Hmm. And even though I didn't follow up with a lot of them, and it was like, he would tell me what he was going to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. <laughs> But, but uh, you know, but it wasn't, it was just because that, that wasn't going to work for me, you know, in, in my style. But, um, you know, it was just great that we were, we were, uh, you know, close friends and that he would feel comfortable you know, revealing that to me. And, and um, he said, take whatever you want. You know, if I, if I give you, if I let you know these things, you're welcome to follow through them. You're welcome to ignore them. He, you know, he very much detached from the series at that point. And, and he, and, you know, I really want, you know, I was kind of like a puppy dog. I really wanted him, his approval. <laughs> I mean, who else would you, who's, who else's approval would you want on New Warriors besides Fabian, right? I mean, mm. the guy who essentially took it from its very humble beginnings as a random collection of teen characters from the Marvel Universe handbook <laughs> and turned it into what, into what he did, right? Yeah. Uh, along with uh, Mark and, and Derek. So, so I, but he, he didn't read it, you know, for a long time. I knew he wasn't reading it and he, and I didn't really get it until many years later when uh, someone else started writing New Warriors and I had no interest in reading it. <laughs> so, um, and I suddenly understood that when you have an emotional connection to, to a book or to a series of characters like that, that there's really no, there's no, there's a no it's a no-win scenario mm. for, for reading someone else writing it because either they're going to screw it up and it's going to hurt or they're going to do a great job and you're going to wish you were doing it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was. It was. It wasn't until many years later that that Fabian actually uh, read my run on it and, and told me what he thought. So, and he, and he told me he liked it. But uh, I suddenly got that. So, so yeah, that was a very different scenario with Super Pro. I, I didn't. I didn't perceive that Fabian had any particular emotional attachment <laughs> to that character. And um, I'm very happy that the the jokes that occur about Super Pro are, are still aimed solely at Fabian, and that people forget that I people forget that I. Work on it too, and I'm fine with that. What um, I guess uh, of the various books that you like, do you go to like bef- when comic conventions were still happening? Were you going to them? Were you signing books? Um, I, I, I occasionally, occasionally, um, I, I, I didn't go to them that often. I usually would go there to not necessarily sign books, but to uh, read to watch look at portfolios. Like I would go there at the Marvel booth, and I, I they'd ask me if I would do 
you know, some time at the booth. And mm-hmm. but you know, I, I'm, I, being a writer, there's really nothing to sign. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, the people. I don't have art. I don't have original artwork I can sell. I'm not going to. I'm not going to charge people to sign them. So, what, what was my incentive to go to a comic book convention uh, and maybe sign issues of New Warriors I wrote? You know, mm-hmm. for people, I, I wouldn't charge them. And and yet, I have nothing I can sell to, to justify the expense that I'm going to incur by being there, having a table. Mm-hmm. So I, I would go mostly, honestly, after I left comics, I would go to Comic Con whenever I could, just to see my old friends. Mm-hmm. It was. You know, because I, I had left the industry in the late '90s, and I really didn't—I didn't really look back. I mean, I, I'm still in touch with many people in the industry and in, in the business who were either have moved on or who are still in it. But I—I um, I didn't get to see them that often. So, so the comic conventions were like, like Comic Con, especially, or New York Comic Con, were places where I would just—it would be like a, a reunion, you know, and it, it'd be really uh, nice. And so that was the main reason I would go to Comic Con, comic conventions. Mm-hmm. Do you find it um, bizarre then when people are, you know, like myself, uh, of our comic book podcast, want to talk to you about specifically your comic book work, considering it has been over 20 years? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm very flattered. It, it always amazes me when someone tells me that they, you know, that they are passionate about the work that I did that long ago. Because, you know, I mean, to my eye, I, and I never quite achieved that level of, um, you know, fame and uh, impact that I would have liked to, that someone like Fabian did or like Turk Music or Peter David or, you know, many other people. I, you know, I kind of, I kind of came in at a certain point where I kind of bumped into the, for many reasons, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take some of them on for myself, but also timing-wise, my timing was terrible. You know, I just, and, and also the things I did when I went there, again, I wasted a lot of time doing things the wrong way uh, being stubborn about wanting to write, uh, you know, not work on existing series, but to work on my own series. And that was just, you know, wrong-headed thinking. So I wasted time doing that. And of course, once the bubble burst, uh, you know, it, it was like, um, it was like, I think, I think it was Tom Revoort who kind of likened it to uh, a meteor entering the Earth's atmosphere hmm. and, and kind of burning away uh, everyone but the core talent, the big names, you know, in terms of who was going to get to write and, and, and do art on the remaining books that were not going to get canceled. And so, yeah, uh, at that point, uh, someone who had kind of got to where I was, um, you know, which was, you know, okay, but it wasn't something that, it wasn't, I wasn't setting the world on fire. So, you know, I, I, I am surprised, I guess, after all these years when, when anyone remembers that I worked in comics or what I wrote or that's what I thought. I edited Ghost Rider 299. I, even when I, you know, even today, I'll, I'll bump into someone and they'll find out I, I edited Ghost Rider 299, and they'll be like, "Oh my God, that was my favorite book! I can't believe you worked on that. You were the editor." You know, so um, it, it, it does surprise me because uh, you know I felt like I made a pretty small splash in, in comics while I was in it in the industry, but um, it's also very gratifying and, and a nice surprise when it happened. So I, I had mentioned, uh, I kind of when I was originally setting up the interview with you, that w- w- a book that meant a lot to me was a book that maybe feels like a footnote in your history, which was uh, Spider-Man: The Parker Years, 
which was a one shot in I guess 1995, um, which was kind of the ending the the first kind of half of the Clone Saga era. And so you were tapped to by Glenn Greenberg and Tom Brevoort to actually you know write this book. I'm curious about the circumstances of it because it seems like in some ways a thankless task to try to sum up Peter Parker, you know, deciding to leave and kind of pack up all his belongings and you know decide to you know move across the country to Portland and leave being Spider-Man behind. And so you're kind of you you come in to kind of uh, put a bow on this and do kind of a retrospective issue. So it feels like a thankless task. Did it feel that way when you were writing it? Well, I wouldn't say thankless. I was always thankful to get to get work. And for sure, you know, at that point, at that point, um, I felt that I was kind of um, on the cusp of maybe breaking through the way I had hoped I would because um, you know the Spider-Man. Uh, group of titles had four monthly titles at that point and mm-hmm. they each had a writer and um and then they had some but they had other things they needed to do too and I, I was i was being tapped for some of those special projects so i i kind of felt that you know if um like for example if todd Dezago, uh were to uh be pushed i mean um fall and step in front of a bus um that <laughs> maybe um you know i'd be i'd be on deck no todd's a great guy we've worked together as well but um but the idea being that I felt like maybe I was, you know, kind of on the on-deck circle in, mm. in the Spider-Man group. And I don't know if that's true or not, um, but I, I was hoping that it was. And so, yeah, if I could, if I could get um, keep doing that Spider-Man work and proving myself, and of course he's, he is one of my favorite characters, and not probably my favorite, very favorite, my favorite character in comics, um, then, you know, I, I was very hopeful. So it wasn't, um, you know, this particular title, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad when I hear people it meant a lot to them, and you're not the first person to say that, especially in recent years, that it had a huge impact on them, um, which, you know, surprises me in one way, because, yeah, for me, it really was, my main memory of that title is um, Xeroxing old comic books hmm. uh, for reference. You know, we, we, we wanted to send and, and put into a package to, to send to, to the artist, uh, Joe St. Pierre. So, you know, spanning so many issues, right? So we need to make sure that we got it all right. And so I remember helping with organizing uh, that that reference. Um, and so that's the main thing I remember from that process. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, Glenn said in an interview at some point that, that, that he was basically trying to think of someone to, to do something for this. And I happened to walk in the office at that time. Yep. And Tom was incredibly sick at home and feverish. And that's when Glenn pounced and said, can Evan write it? And Tom, not knowing what was what day it was, said yes. Uh, <laughs> And that was it. So, um, hey, I'll take the work any way I can. But it was it was an interesting project because the main the main thing I had to figure out was the framing sequence and and how to make it feel impactful. And and so uh, I remember I don't remember exactly what they had already come up with, but I I, I get the impression, you know, twenty plus years later, that um, that you know they wanted some kind of retrospective, but they weren't quite sure how. And I believe the, the framing sequence is what I brought to the table, this kind of argument that he and Mary Jane are having mm. over whether what he did was worthwhile. And so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always, like I said, I'm always pleased when something I've done has had an impact on someone, and you never know what issue that's going to be. It's like when Mark Grunewald used to hammer into us assistant editors during assistant editor school, uh, which we had every week or two while I was an assistant editor, um, teaching us about storytelling and comic book making and all these wonderful things, he uh, would remind us that um, several things. One, that any comic book might be someone's first comic book ever, mm-hmm. and is it welcoming them? 
and every character, every hero, is someone's favorite. And so, so show them respect. Respect that that fan who, um, even if you don't like the character, uh, don't disrespect them uh, because someone out there is their favorite. And so, um, yeah, I, I I feel like the same with any book you write. Any 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 issue you write might be someone's favorite, hopefully. And and um, so I'm I'm always pleased when I hear that. Mm. I, I feel like when I read it, I'm, I, I'm not trying to age you up or make you feel old, but I think I would have been like maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I was, again, not super familiar with Spider-Man comics at the time. So I always liked it because there's so much history in it. And so it's funny when I hear people now talking about how, you know, comics are hard for younger readers to get into. And I'm like, well, I got in in the 90s and things were super complicated. And But you'd have books like this where, you know, they'd be talking about all the stuff that happened in the past. You'd have kind of glimpses of it. You'd have footnotes in the back kind of explaining what issues. And that just seemed exciting. It didn't seem daunting. It seemed, you know, exciting to know that there was this huge world that I was now, you know, starting to dip my toes into. And this is this was an easy way to quickly understand a lot of it in you know relatively short amount of, of pages so i was really appreciated that you did such a great job kind of you know harkening back to all these stories and it got just the right kind of jo- uh, kind of uh, vibes off of it and i feel like if you had already known those stories you would have gotten more out of it obviously than i would have at the time but uh, as a new reader it, it really worked on me that's really good to hear so let me let me ask you did you go back and find those old issues that we that we referenced because we, we basically listed every single one i think in the in the uh you know, in the footnotes, did you did you go back and, and research the things that, that we hinted at in that issue? I actually did. Um, I didn't find everything because at the time, you know, I couldn't find everything when I was 12 years old going to comic book stores. But I was definitely doing my best to kind of fill in the blanks and find out some of the, you know, stuff that looked a lot more interesting. In the intervening years, I've read probably read everything on there. But, uh, yeah, no, it definitely did make me search those things out. Um, and I, again, there's a bunch of comics that were around this period, which the similar type of idea. I think when um, Roger Stern did Hobgoblin Lives, they did a similar type of thing where they had like footnotes in the back. And again, I want to I want to know where when this happened and how this works. And so it definitely kind of worked on that part of my brain. That's really cool. I mean, you know, when we do an issue like that and we drive you know readers toward back issues, there's really no monetary incentive for Marvel to do that. In other words, Marvel gets no money from from you know back issues mm-hmm. you know it's all it's all it's all second second heckling market so but it, it it still it can fire the imagination and make you realize that there's a whole history there and and kind of you know hook you in for for future issues possibly so um but yeah that that issue again for me it was it was you know a, a flash you know a month or two of my of my life you know and one of several books i was probably writing at the time um, and again, my, my main memory of it is, is loads of pages of Xeroxes being put in the FedEx envelopes to send to, to Joe. <laughs> but um, but I'm really I'm really pleased that that it had that impact on you and, and some others too. For sure. Now, you, you did bring up uh, Mark Grunewald, and I always like to ask people who worked in, at Marvel during the kind of 80s and 90s period um, if they have a favorite Mark Grunewald story. Because he's, he's – he, I mean, obviously, I'm much younger, so I never got to really experience uh, uh, Grunewald. But he just feels like this personality that lives on, um, and I'm always excited to kind of hear more stories about him. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you've been told that he was the heart you know, and soul of Marvel uh, during that time. And I, I, I came in and – you know, late uh, 1988, and, um, you know, Mark was a nice guy, and he seemed kind of normal. Uh, <laughs> he didn't seem like this kind of wacky, crazy guy that, that I found out that he was, and it seemed like, um, you know, in the time that I was there, from the late 80s and through the mid-90s, was a much more toned-down version 
of Mark. Mm. And we still saw flashes of that of that humor and that uh, you know mischievousness. Uh, but uh, but I would see we once in a while we'd see videos of things that they had pulled in the past, <laughs> like crazy stuff, right? Like you know there was I know you probably heard the stories of of that news anchor that yes that yeah okay so there's that one and there was a time when they they I think they they taped a bunch of um, packing peanuts uh, <laughs> a wall of packing peanuts to someone's door and so when they opened the door they got you know they, they all flew in the person's face and <laughs> um, you know just all just all kinds of stories and, and then when when Mark unfortunately passed when he was so young there was a, an amazing amazing and well-attended memorial where they played a lot of these videos even ones that I hadn't seen yet and just just there was a, there was a time when things were so much crazier at Marvel before I got there you know and so I felt I felt like I was seeing the the tail end of just mm-hmm. an amazing uh, you know time there and and a lot of it was was uh, kind of prompted by Mark and his incredible sense of humor so uh, he still did things once in a while that were that were along those lines. They just they just weren't on the same scope, you know. They, they I mean, they had construction uh, uniforms like those jumpsuits <laughs> with construction hats uh, that they would that the staff would put on uh, when the tour would come through to make it seem like we were working like an industrial site building comics. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was after my that was after my time. I, I mean, I, I would see once hanging around the office once in a while. I'd say, what is that? What's with that? You know, that hard hat in the in the jumpsuit? Oh yeah, that was Mark's thing with the. With the thing, so um, so, but the, the the memories I do have mostly of Mark that are along these lines would be for the the Halloween parties because mm-hmm. those were though he would run those and there was lots of silliness and things you couldn't get away with today during those. I think the the, the things that stick out to me personally uh, were these uh, the spin the intern contest. <laughs> so an, an intern would several interns would be uh, on the the tile floor. Uh, curled up on their kind of on their backs with their legs pulled up, and uh, we would have to spin them. Uh, and whichever one we spun faster, we, we, I, don't, I don't know what the rules were, but just knowing it's called the spin the intern contest is probably enough uh, for you to go on there. And then it, I think I, I also remember losing a, a belly button lint uh, contest to Howard Mackey during <laughs> parties, and I'm like, what? Who thinks of these things? <laughs> You know, whoever had the most lint in the belly button would win that particular contest. So uh, things you couldn't do today, and uh, there were definitely those are the kind of flashes of that, um, you know, mischievous nature and uh, pranking nature that Mark had. Um, and for some reason, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, I think maybe maybe when he became an executive editor, he realized maybe or he thought maybe he shouldn't do as much of those things. I don't know, hmm. but um, you know, I, I always really liked Mark. I, I didn't get to work with him that closely, but whenever I did. It was always a pleasure. I mean, he wasn't just all about fun and games. He really knew his stuff, of course, and um, and it was just a, a very, again, he ran a certain editor's uh, school every week or two, and we would learn all, all kinds of things in those that he felt really strongly about imparting this knowledge to the next generation of editors and writers. So it was a really a terrible day when we found out we had lost him, and, and part of Marvel, a big part of Marvel, definitely you know died that day, too. Yeah. That definitely seems to be the the general sentiment, as you said, is that he was kind of the, the heart of Marvel at the time, and that Marvel definitely lost something when he passed away. Absolutely. Uh, moving moving on to slightly happier things, hopefully, or, or maybe not even happier, but just different. Um, in the 
kind of earlier period when you were part of Marvel, you would have been part of the kind of editorial area when the Image Founders left. Um, and I'm curious what your perspective, I mean, obviously you weren't an executive editor or anything at the time, but what was the kind of the feeling among the editorial where you were when that talent kind of moved and, and opened their own company? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, it was all kind of the periphery for me, but there was definitely a sense, uh, you know, people reacted differently to this, but I think there was a general sense of, among editorial, of, you know, some, some resentment, I think. Hmm. The, the impression I got is that when the, um, the people who uh, went on to form Image, they basically went to, uh, you know, the executive leadership at Marvel and more or less gave them an ultimatum. Hmm. And, and basically said, we, we, want, we want this, this, and this. And, and, and basically demanding things that Marvel could never give them. They, I mean, I, I don't know the exact details, but it was basically a, um, a deal that was not meant to be taken seriously. So they could say, again, this is what I heard, but the, the impression I got was that people thought that they made this, this um, you know, offer just so they could say they made an offer before they, before they all left. Hmm. And then when they did leave, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of rivalry right between us and Image. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, <laughs> the lot of dismissiveness at the higher, uh, you know, some of the higher levels of editorial and, and not really taking the, the, their the threat they, they, they um, represented seriously. Hmm. And I've talked about in other interviews how, you know, it was very frustrating for us to see that the production quality on, on those books, just, just the printing work and the coloring work they were doing compared to what we were still doing at Marvel and the paper we were printing on and the lack of Photoshop coloring we were seeing. It was, you know, it was like Marvel, we're at Marvel, we're Marvel. Why, why are we letting someone else you know, kind of outshine us like this. Hmm. And uh, in terms of production values, at least. So um, it was, yeah, it was a very uneasy time. And, um, you know, and, and of course, uh, then of course the bubble burst not long after that, and it was even less easy. Hmm. <laughs> or more, more uneasy, I guess I would say. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, there were a lot of different opinions. I think some people obviously understood their perspective. And, you know, if you're able to break away from the work for hire, um, you know, treadmill that some people see it as, and, and you, you know, late, years later, you'll know you don't own anything that you did, and you won't have anything you can rely on that's yours. I totally get that, um, and I, I respect the work they did, and 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 uh, you know, the the, the, the chances that the chance they took to do this. I mean, it was it was very gutsy move, uh, but it definitely generated uh, some resentment uh, among you know within the the halls of Marvel editorial. I would say. When you're at Marvel in this period, I'm curious because you said like you know that your your desire was really to kind of generate new characters and new content uh, and and to kind of start writing that way. I mean, obviously it was a very different landscape back in the '90s. But did you ever think about like can I just go elsewhere or can I do self publishing or can I try something different where I am generating my own characters or was it more wanting to generate new characters that would live in the Marvel universe? Yeah, it was it was definitely the latter. Like I. I really had my heart set on Marvel. I, I was a Marvel fan, not necessarily a comics fan. Hmm. And, and, and so when I was interviewing, in fact, before I was able to get in at Marvel, I would do all these informational interviews and trying to just bang my head against the Marvel door just to get in, in the door. <laughs> and I remember like the second or third time I did this, the HR woman you know, sat, me, sat me down for a nice little interview. And one thing she said was, have you, have you been applying to DC? And I said, no. 
And she said, well, maybe you should. I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't really want to. <laughs> I want to be here. <laughs> so for me, it was like Marvel or bust. Uh, I had grown up with Marvel Comics, and, and that was what got me back into comics when I was in college, and I was very passionate about it. And so, I mean, I was looking, my other opportunities I was looking at at that time were like working at magazines. I was, I was trained as a journalist, uh, and so I was, I was actually interviewing at different magazines in New York City. Marvel was like the pipe dream. So for me, yeah, it was, it was essentially Marvel or bust, and, and so I, didn't, I never really thought about, gee, I could, I could self-publish or I could do something else. I, I really, for me, it was, it was Marvel or bust, and I also didn't see uh, Marvel or comics as the end of my career. Like I, I, some people that I worked with there, Marvel was like the pinnacle of their dream, and they, once they got there, they never wanted to leave, and, they, and, and, um, and that was fine for them. They were very, very passionate about that one particular medium, but for me, it was, it was something that I loved doing, but I was also uh, open to moving on at some point if, if another opportunity presented itself. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a dichotomy that I only work, wanted to work at Marvel um, w- within comics, and, uh, but I was also, you know, could see it as a stepping stone to other things potentially, and, and eventually it, it ended up being just that for me in terms of my moving over to uh, video games eventually. Mm-hmm. So I have, a, I have a question going back to, to New Warriors for a second. So obviously, like you know, that was the the pitch that ended up kind of getting you, you know, your ongoing gig. I'm curious. You said in other interviews that you were pitching to everyone about you know anything that you could do. What, what were what was maybe like your favorite pitch that didn't go that wasn't New Warriors? Uh, oh, well, um, I mean, with it, Terminator Two was probably the most heartbreaking one. Because that that was actually my big break, which happened like a, a well, well over a year before New Warriors, and it was you know going to be time with the movie, and and everyone loved my pitch, and it was it was it was going to be I mean Joe Casada was going to be the artist, he was an up and coming artist at that time, and it was very exciting, and it never happened because of the clashes with the with the licensee licensor. So, um, but within the Marvel universe, I, yeah, I pitched, um, I would pitch for lots of things, uh, and uh, sometimes they were original characters. Sometimes they were for uh, to pitch a series that, that the writer had left, like um, uh, like Thor. Um, sometimes it was uh, I pitched for Spider Man twenty nine nine. I pitched for X Men twenty nine nine. And uh, and of course the uh, nineteen ninety three annuals feature two original characters. All the annuals featured an original character. That was the whole theme of that of that series of annuals. And those two characters were both ones I had pitched. Chaos. Uh, which is basically my D and D character, <laughs> and um, and then uh, the tracer, which I, which to this day it kind of kills me that that didn't work out because, um, you know, it was really I thought it was a really original original idea and a great setup for a series. Uh, the idea basically being that um, you know, uh, bringing going back to Mark Grunewald, um, there was um, a time when there was a character who was running around the Marvel universe, uh, just killing. Uh, two-bit villains uh, and heroes and he would, he would say justice is served this, this, <laughs> this, uh, this mysterious character and they were just throwing away these, old, these characters left and right and, and um, I wanted to do a character that was, that was a whole story about a character who was, who was methodically hunting down uh, the Marvel, char- Marvel superhumans both villains and heroes for a reason for a business and um, and so anyway, if you read the Deathlock Annual in 1993, that's my essentially my pitch for the Tracer series, but it didn't really go anywhere. But I, I really, yeah, that one that was a little um, probably the one I thought was the strongest idea for an original character that I was bringing to the table. Mm. And you know, 
Uh, it would only, a lot, of, a lot of the ideas I had would only work in the Marvel Universe. Mm. In other words, I, I wasn't pitching, like, the Tracer is built around the idea of being in the Marvel Universe. A Turbo, which I you know, co-created with, uh, with Dwight Coy and James Brock, again, very much intertwined with the Marvel Universe history, you know, ROM and the Torpedo and things. Mm -hmm. So I often would have ideas that were designed to, to mesh with the rest of the Marvel Universe and, and really weren't um, extensible uh, to another place or another, another kind of um, you know, environment. It's, it's interesting because that, that methodology almost feels like right at home in the, kind of the Gruenwald kind of uh, yeah, comic book universe, you know, like where everything kind of fits together in some way. Um, and I feel like, you know, Grunewald, again, I say this as someone obviously not ever having known him, but always feels like he really liked continuity, liked things fitting together, and liked the universe feeling lived in and all the pieces kind of fit. So it feels like, you know, you're trying to come up with characters that would fit within that universe is very Grunewald in. Yeah, I, I, oh, I, I, that, that, that sounds, that's a nice thing to hear. And I don't know if it was because uh, I was just thinking that way or because I'm not a very original person. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I get inspired. I get inspired by seeing, like, like seeing that that character running around killing people in the Marvel universe, and as just throwaway panels. And I thought, why isn't this a? This could be a whole series. I mean, if you're going to kill a character in the Marvel universe, why not make it worth doing? Why not actually get some some mileage out of that? You know. Um, as opposed to just doing it because you want to clean things up a little bit, so that was that was the that's where the idea of the tracer came from. And then uh, you know, Turbo was just like, "Hey, Dwight Corey says, hey, I want to do a torpedo series." I'm like, "Who the hell's torpedo?" <laughs> you know. So um, you know, once I saw it, we began weaving it into the history of that character and the, and the armor. So um, I tend to get inspired by by maybe other people's initial ideas or things they've done. I, I'm not the best blank sheet of paper guy. Mm. Um, I'm not. I'm not like a dance flop. I've always marveled at, no pun intended, but at Dan's ability to just come up with so many original ideas, completely, you know, original and and great ideas, on a regular basis from essentially a blank. What seems like a blank page. Mm. Um, you know, Dan was uh, was mine and Fabian's intern, um, and and before that he uh, was in art returns. At Marvel, returning original artwork to to um, you know artists after it had been scanned for for publication, and um, yeah, I just would always mar always be amazed by his ability to just kind of seem like some whole cloth from incredible storylines and, um, and and without without I don't, and I would often you know, I do want to ask him that horrible question, which is where do you get your ideas, right? Because <laughs> every writer hates that question, but um, some people have lots more than others, and I I often tend to get inspired by something I've seen. Or something that you know that has um, that has you know kind of affected me, and then I will kind of go off from that, go, go on a tangent from that, or extrapolate from that in some other direction. Hmm. And maybe why I was um, more you know often you know very comfortable as an editor because that's what editors tend to do is they kind of you know help the help the writer and the team find their best way to their best story uh, without getting in their way. For sure. Now, let me ask a question about, uh, speaking of kind of editorial in general, um, when you're writing New Warriors, what was it disruptive when your book suddenly migrated to the Spider-Man office in terms of, you know, there wasn't a Marvel Universe kind of line at the time. So obviously a book like New Warriors would have kind of fallen in between the cracks, which is why it kind of ended up getting kind of shuffled over to Spider-Man during the reorganization. Did that 
how did that affect you as a writer at the time? Yeah, well, you know, when you when you uh, pitch a series and, you, and you've got a whole plan, it's like a two-year plan for the series, uh, something like that will definitely throw a wrench into the works. Um, and, uh, you know, th- th- it was one of these double-edged swords, right? So moving into the Spider-Man group means we're going to get to have, you know, Spider-Man more or less on our team, even though, you know, at the face of it, Spider-Man doesn't really belong on a, on a team like the New Warriors. But, um, but we, you know, we found ways to make it feel like it was going to work. And so the, the advantage, of course, is that we get more visibility with one of the main characters of the Marvel Universe. Uh, but, you know, the, the downside, of course, is that and maybe it doesn't feel like the best fit and you kind of get uh, tangled up in the continuity uh, that, that, that is surrounding that, that uh, IP, right, that, that, that line of books. And so, you know, I had watched Fabian struggle with this for years as, a, as an X-Men writer, right, because he, he often seemed like he never, it seemed like he very rarely got a chance to tell a story that he just wanted to tell, as opposed to telling a chapter of a larger story written by you know, many people mm-hmm. together collaboratively, and so um, there was a, I got a little taste of that working on New Warriors when we got uh, when we were moved over into the Spider-Man line of titles, but it was you know it was not on the scale of what I think Fabian uh, went through on the X, X titles, which were you know incredibly interwoven and collaborative and you know big ticket storylines and high stakes uh so yeah it definitely impacted our plans but uh but you know again uh that inspired me like okay well this is the situation how do i solve this how do i make this feel right and and what can i where can i go from here Mm. uh and so i tried to find ways to make it interesting that that uh, you know ben riley was going to be helping the team and eventually asked to join the team and um and then, you know, we kind of detached from them pretty quickly. As you may notice, we, we, he wasn't really with the team that long. And even though the Spider-Man logo was on our book, we weren't really, you know, we kind of diverged from there, you know, once that, once the actual clonage was over. So it, it wasn't a massive impact. And I still got to tell, you know, many of the stories that I did want to tell. Uh, but, you know, it's just an additional complication. And, and um, like I said, a double-edged sword, because you get that, that uh, association with Spider-Man, one of the flagship characters of that the flagship character of Marvel. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of, that was kind of cool. That part of it was, was nice. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like, you know, there were, there were ups and downs to it, definitely. When you're working with uh, with Patrick Zerker, um, so he's you know re- relatively new at the time in the industry. Obviously, he's still working today. Um, what was it like working with him? And again, when you're writing scripts on you know this is your ongoing series, this is your you know quote unquote big break at the time. Like I finally get to do an ongoing book. Were you working Marvel style? Were you working more full script at the time? Oh, I was. We were working Marvel style. That was that was standard back then. I mean, you, you really couldn't you. you there was DC style, full script style, and there was Marvel style, which was plot script. And I, I wasn't aware of, of too many others at Marvel who were who were not using the Marvel method. Um, and yeah, Pat, Pat and I really worked well together. I, I really enjoyed working with him. He, you know, we would have these long phone calls, uh, you know, talking about various things about the book, and he would call with questions. And you know, and of course, the Marvel method is so rewarding because as a writer you basically, you know, lay out more or less page by page what you want to have happen with some placeholder dialogue just so the artist knows the gist of what they're saying. And then he comes back, you know, with his interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. And, and then you look at it, and first of all, it's very exciting to get pencils back. And then you script over it, and, and you're reacting partly to what, what the artist has, has added to the experience. 
little touches, like facial expressions. And again, this is maybe going back to me, again, being uh, comfortable reacting to the creativity of others and, 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 and kind of riffing on it, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to laying out a script and, and everything in it is defined. And, and I just never understood why you would want to have the writer be the person who chooses how many panels are on a page, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, th- that's, that's a visual decision. Why would you put that in the writer's hands? So I, I never really got that. I'm, I'm surprised when I hear that Marvel has gone full script in, on almost all its books at this point. But, but yeah, I really enjoyed that process. And like I said, there was nothing, nothing beats getting those pencils back from the artists. You know, and, and obviously you're hoping that they will reflect what you wrote. Um, obviously once in a while you're working with an artist who doesn't, doesn't seem like they read you, you wrote carefully or, or kind of did their own thing. But with Pat uh, and I, we were totally in sync and I was uh, almost always just delighted with, with the way that he brought these ideas to visual life. And um, yeah, it was a really good relationship and I, I, um, I hope he feels the same way. Um, you know, we worked together for a pretty, good, pretty long run, a couple of years, just about. So um, it was a really good experience. What stands out as well about your new Warriors run um, is that, I mean, again, it's in a, a period of a lot of flux, but you guys are so consistent. I mean, the fact that, you know, I think, what, didn't Patrick do all but one issue? So you guys are very a consistent team, which, I, especially looking backwards now, these days, to have a team work together for that long, un, almost uninterrupted, is kind of, you know, just doesn't happen anymore. So seeing it now seems like such an oddity, but I guess at the time, maybe didn't seem as odd. It was it was um, it was not unheard of back then, but it also wasn't it was not necessarily assumed. And once once Pat got on the book, you know, after my my second issue, he he did every issue after that. Hmm. And um, that's a, that's partly a testament to his professionalism. You know, he he hit his deadlines. A lot a lot of times when you see an artist uh, get get a fill in issue or whatever, that's because the art the, the artist is not able to keep up. And he was um, not only good but fast. And uh, so, and, and like I said, I, I, I like to think that the reason he stayed on was because he was enjoying himself. It seemed like he was, based on what we were talking about and what, and what he was drawing and the, the, the passion he was putting into that. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it wasn't unheard of back then, but at the same time, it wasn't unusual for an artist to drop out after a certain amount of time, either because they couldn't keep up or because they lost interest or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was really rewarding to have that really consistent look to the book. And also, if you look at the New Warriors, that first series, you've got basically 25 issue clumps, uh, you know, with with a, with, a, with a single artist more or less, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Mark the, the Mark Bagley block, the Derek Robertson block, and then the Patrick Zorka block. And so it, you've got that really nice lack of lack of um, you know jittery jittery art styles jumping all over the place for the most mm-hmm. part. Let's, talking about uh, artists with a good uh, work ethic, I mean, Mark Bagley is definitely a number one on the list. I would say. Oh yeah. Like just the, oh, definitely, yeah. The the amount of content and the consistent quality is. Uh, I I still think to this day, like I don't think anyone will ever put out as much in the modern era as as him at such a high level of quality. And, and that's why he was a great match for Fabian, right? Because on the writing side, Fabian was the same way. I mean, he the amount of content that Fabian would turn out and high quality content at the height when he was writing, I don't know how many books at once, but so many I could barely keep track. And, you know, I think I've told this story before, but you know, there was, he was working so hard. Uh, you know, we, again, I mentioned the softball team and there was one time I didn't, I wasn't at the game, but apparently he sprained his thumb hmm. and, um, and he was in the ER 
you know, waiting to, to be seen to see whether it's broken or whatever. And he's got his laptop and he's writing like X Men script with his with his good hand. <laughs> like you know, this this is the work ethic. So so yeah, I think I think Mark and Fabian were a perfect match in, in that regard and, and of course others, uh, because of their ability to turn out really good content uh, really quickly and, and be really professional about it. So I, I, I'm running a little bit uh, close to ending our time, but one thing I wanted to ask was, uh, uh, looking at the books that you worked on, you wrote two issues of Web of Scarlet Spider, which has always stood out to me because, first of all, it's always been weird that Scarlet Spider, Web of Scarlet Spider got issues three and four, whereas all the other Scarlet Spider books kind of ended because Ben Riley was going to be Spider-Man now. But they wanted to, I guess, still use the Scarlet Spider for two more issues, so they have this kind of odd storyline where they have to kind of use the Scarlet Spider IP, I guess, and kind of put it to bed and have Ben Riley really be Spider-Man now and take out the Scarlet Spider. So how did it come to you to write these two issues, um, and what was that process? And are there any memories that you have of this period? <laughs> that's a that's a pretty foggy uh, foggy memory. I have to be honest with you. Um, I remember that that you know for that that crossover, you know, I was at one of these uh, summits as we were trying to figure all this stuff out, and 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 of course the New Warriors was being uh, you know was kind of you know entangled in that because we were part of the Spider-Man books then. So and, and also. You know, again, I was I was sort of seeing myself in this on deck kind of circle for the Spider-Man group, so I was very happy to, to write anything that, that they wanted me to in that in that uh, area. So, um, but the, the details, all I remember is that you know uh, Helix was a character that we were going to bring into New Warriors anyway, so we kind of volunteered him up to appear in earlier issues of that of that series. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, unfortunately. We weren't credited with the uh, with the created by character with the created by credit that you would normally see if the writer and artist on that issue did create the character. Mm. So um, now these days the um, the documentation shows that uh, that Tom DeFalco and um, I don't know who the artist was, but that they, I think it might have been might have been Ron Friends. I'm not sure, but that they created um, Helix, which I know. Okay, if it's a Helix movie, then I'll then I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll make a fuss. But <laughs> but anyway. Um, I remember doing that, saying, "Okay, let's let's put Helix in, and because um, and that way we can use this to get him over to our into our book anyway." Um, but the rest of it, I, you know, I honestly don't remember the details of why that particular run went two extra issues, or you know, I, I don't remember much beyond that. I think it was worked out during a summit, and at a summit, you basically say, "Okay, eventually you figure out, okay, this issue is going to be that, this issue is going to be that." And this is this is who's going to write it. So, but unfortunately, the details of that particular uh, decision are, are kind of are kind of too foggy to, for me to remember at my ancient at my ancient state. <laughs> So I'll, I'll skip ahead then. Um, so as you kind of mentioned earlier, after comic books kind of ended, um, you kind of moved on to you know working on video games. So I'm curious, obviously, about working on Marvel Ultimate Alliance two and what that process was to kind of get to write these characters again, but in a you know in a video game setting. First of all, like how did you even get that gig, and how how, how enjoyable was that to be able to revisit these characters in a different medium? It, well, first of all, it was fantastic. It was a wonderful experience, um, and uh, how it happened was that I had transitioned into working in games uh, about six years. Let's see, seven. No, anyway, that, at that point it was like seven years earlier uh, as a producer, and I was working at a studio in upstate New York called Vicarious Visions, which is 
became an Activision studio shortly after I, I joined it. Mm-hmm. And, um, at, and at some point, you know, as an Activision studio, they, the studio inherited the responsibility for creating the, the sequel to Marvel Ultimate Alliance 1. And I was there as a producer, but uh, I had also been lending my, uh, you know, my writing background to a lot of our games because I found that the people who make games, uh, there, there are stories in the games, there's dialogue in the games, and the people who write that dialogue are sometimes just game designers who are said, hey, you, write the dialogue. And um, so I would say, hey, you know, and some, and people have different capabilities in this area without having any training at all. I mean, while I've, you know, I've had a whole career in Marvel as a writer and editor, so I would say, hey, can I just do a polish on that? <laughs> I think the first one I saw was like a, a Wolverine game, and uh, I was like, hey, I used to work at Marvel, like, I could maybe make this sound more like Wolverine, and and so I began doing more of that. And so when the opportunity for Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2 came along, I'd already been involved in lots of stories at the studio, in addition to my producing duties. Uh, we had actually developed Spider-Man 3, the Wii version, yeah. um, and so we had done a lot of, I had done quite a bit of writing on that. And so when this opportunity came along, I basically, I basically said to the leadership of the studio, I said, look, I mean, I'm a Marvel writer, I'm here. If you hire some outside Marvel writer to do this instead of me, I'm not sure that made much sense. And they were like, no, no, you, you definitely should be the lead writer. So that's kind of how that happened. I, I, you know, it's, it's much easier if the writer is in-house mm. than if they're, they're out, or out, you know, outside the studio because of coordination. So um, it was so great getting to write the book. And of course, I tried to steer things to having more of the new warriors in there. <laughs> and if you play the game, you'll see, uh, you know, uh, Justice and Firestar and, of course, uh, Speedball during his penance phase. <laughs> um, and, you know, I managed to sneak in a few lines that referred to, you know, deep continuity or, or other things about the team that maybe someone else wouldn't have known. Um, so that was, but, but just getting to, getting to play in the Marvel Universe again to that degree um, and on such a high-profile title was just like, this is, it was really, a, you know, basically taking my two careers and really showing them together. And, and this was the point that I really realized I didn't want to be a game producer anymore. I wanted to be a game writer mm. and narrow designer full-time. Uh, because I was like, here, I'm hitting on all cylinders now. I know how games are made. I've spent the last seven years learning how games are made as a producer and, and also do, as a, also a designer sometimes. And, uh, of course, I have the background of writing uh, fiction and, and stories. And, and so this is what I should be doing. And that's when I kind of made that, that, that shift over to writing and narrow design full time. Not at Vicarious Visions because that didn't, that didn't, they didn't have a need for that at that time. So that's when I left uh, there and went to uh, LucasArts in the, here in San Francisco Bay Area. and was working on um, Star Wars 1313, and then, you know, it was like other things. Hmm. Now, with, uh, with Ultimate Alliance, too, I'm just curious, like, I mean, when they started developing it, how early were you kind of starting to kind of break the story? Or, like, did they already kind of knew that they were going to do kind of the Civil War and kind of adapt, uh, you know, a version of that? Like, how early in the process was that kind of figured out? Well, the, the, the Civil War angle was figured out very early. Um, the, the first uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance, I want to call it MUA now because that's what we called it when we were working on it, <laughs> and it's easier to say. So when MUA 1 was uh, first coming out, that's when Civil War comics were coming out too. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was looking at the game and the comics saying, wouldn't this be a great sequel to, to, to have you fight for your side in the Marvel Universe, in the, Marvel, in the Civil War? So by the time uh, we got the assignment, everyone had already more or less decided that's what it should be. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but I was there from the very beginning uh, with regard to developing the story and the structure of it and how we were going to approach it and how were we going to resolve our version of the, of the story because we couldn't, uh, you know, we, we were going to have to uh, reunite the heroes by the end of our game. Mm-hmm. And we could not make two separate games, uh, you know, a pro-registration a pro side and an anti-registration side. So we had to figure a way to, uh, to uni- re- reunify the group by the end of the second act. And so we had to puzzle over what that was going to be um, for our game. And, fortu- and, and fortunately, uh, Marvel gave us lots of leeway with regard to modifying the story to make it work in the game. So they, they were very open to us saying, look, this isn't going to work for a game because of X, Y, Z. And they were like, good, okay, change it. Uh, but they, they reviewed everything, and they were really great to work with. Uh, and, um, you know, we had a, it was a wonderful project, wonderful time. It's interesting that like at the, at the early end of your career, you're again you're working as a, an editorial assistant, and you're working with you know sometimes seeing some of the licensed products, and now you're literally working on like your work. You're kind of a flipping at the script in terms of now you're working on the license from Marvel itself. Yeah, it was it was kind of weird, right? I mean, they, they you know I was I was a we were a licensee of Marvel, and Marvel was the licensor, right? Um, but the fact that I, you know, had so much experience with, with the company, I think gave that Marvel a certain amount of um, reassurance. And, and our, our entire narrative team was, was very much steeped in Marvel lore. So we, um, you know, we were giving them things that they were happy about, you know, and, and that's we, that made sense within their universe and, and felt on tone for the characters. So um, it, it was, yeah, it really did feel like full circle for me. And... Um, you know, I felt very fortunate. What was the, uh, the the research like? I mean, obviously, you had to kind of get reacquaint yourself with, uh, I guess, like old friends, really. I mean, kind of to get as steeped as you could so you could do a, a good adaptation and kind of bring all these beats forward. So what was it like to being able to kind of read comics as, as, as work? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's always good to get paid to read comics. <laughs> and, um, I, I really hadn't kept up with, the Marvel Universe. I, I, you know, when you work at Marvel, you get these, you know, at least back then, you used to get these piles of comics, free comics every week, you know, uh, the bundle, they would call it. You'd get a bundle of Marvel books. You'd also get a bundle of all the DC books that came out because uh, there was like an exchange program that we had with them. Hmm. So you'd get like a pile of like 50 comics a week for free. Uh, and then when you leave Marvel, you get nothing, right? So <laughs> so now, now I'm like a, any other slub in the comic store looking at, oh, boy, it's $2 an issue? What? What, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? So... <laughs> Um, so I, I didn't really, I didn't really um, keep up with what was happening in the. Also, I didn't refer to complex fans as slubs. I just meant that you know I, <laughs> I had to pay like everybody else. Um, but the you know the uh, I just didn't keep up. So when it was time to do research for this, I had to do a lot of reading. You know, and mostly we were we were looking at you know the complex that led that led up to Civil War, and of, and of course the entire Civil War crossover. Um, and so I was reading, for example, the you know the, the books that I hadn't been reading. For example, the the New Warriors series that led up to um, you know uh, uh, the explosion at Stanford, all that stuff. That that the the, um, the the reality TV show version of the New Warriors. So uh, you know it was it was a little bit surreal in some ways uh, to be catching up with how many things had changed with the characters. And you know when you, it's like it's like when you leave. It's like when you leave your hometown for a few years, and then you come back, and they've they've, they've changed things. They put new street lights in, and they they built a strip mall here, and they've closed that school. And you're like, 
you don't feel like it's your town anymore for a while, and mm-hmm. then but then you settle back in and you, and you get more comfortable again. So it was a bit like that, I guess. Was there a particular character that you most enjoyed kind of being able to write a little bit more? Hmm. Uh, I really loved writing uh, Nick Fury. Hmm. Classic Nick Fury. So, uh, you know, uh, not the uh, not the one we're seeing in the movies now, which is, which is I consider to be more the ultimate version of uh, the, the Sam Jackson version. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, the, the classic, you know, cigar chomping. <laughs> although we couldn't have us chomping cigars because that would have given us a, a change to our rating for the game. But just writing his dialogue, the way he talks to people, the way he, his kind of gruff manner, um, I really enjoyed working uh, on that character. But, you know, there were so many characters in the game and it was so much fun to work on all these different voices and all these characters again. And, um, you know, uh, feeling so comfortable with them because I knew them all so well, or most of them anyway. And um, so that was, it was a real pleasure. But yeah, I'd say, I'd say Nick Fury and of course uh, Spider-Man. <laughs> um, uh, but like uh, the Thing was fun to write and the Hulk, of course, with his caveman type dialogue at that time. Uh, but just all these characters and, and, and having fun with the interactive nature where the characters respond to what you say and, and kind of have different reactions to your attitude toward them you know, and that we can do in the game space was, you know, it's just really uh, fun. Was there any particular story, story beat or a kind of element that you were most proud of that made it into the game? Hmm. Well, the, the, uh, the thing we, we kind of struggled with for the longest time uh, was not just a writing challenge, it was a what we call a narrative design challenge. And that means how do we tell this story through gameplay? How do we have the player actually experience it, not just watch it like you would in a comic book or a movie. And the big one was, was the, the Civil War choice. Um, we, we wanted this to be happening in gameplay. The player would do something in gameplay that would indicate their choice, as opposed to just going to a menu and choosing pro or anti. Mm. So we, we, we struggled with this for a long time. And uh, we eventually figured out a solution that I, that I feel worked really well. Um, and because it's a, it's a binary decision, you know, pro or anti, but um, we, the, the controls of the game are not binary. They're, they're very much analog. So we were very worried about the player making, the, the wrong, making an accidental choice. Mm. Um, and so we, we worked at this whole uh, series of cutscenes and interactive uh, portions that would kind of inexorably draw you toward making this decision. We had you able to talk to these non-player characters, these other characters from Marvel Universe who were taking sides on the eve of the act being signed and S.H.I.E.L.D. coming by to force you to register or take you into custody and kind of building up that kind of dread or concern and then locking you in a room with, with Maria Hill and, you know, some giant, scary-looking S.H.I.E.L.D. guards and her saying, sign the paperwork and you can't get out until you decide what to do. Um, and then once you do, of course... Uh, you can either attack the guards, which indicates that you're anti-registration, uh, or you can sign the paper and indicates you're pro. And we take it from there. So th- that that sequence, we put a lot of work into it, and it is, I believe it's the highlight of the game. And um, it really, the most rewarding part about that was that a couple of years later, I was at um, PAX East, which is a, a, a video game convention, mm-hmm. and it was in Boston. And uh, Ken, Levine, Ken Levine, who is a uh, creative director uh, and, uh, and one of the writers on Bioshock, which is my, one of my favorite games of all time, 
he was doing a talk and to a big room and after it was done I, I walked up and introduced myself and he asked me what I had worked on and I told him and one of the things I mentioned was Mua 2 and he said oh that, that choice sequence I love that choice sequence <laughs> I was like oh my god I can, I can die now so, <laughs> um, it meant a lot to hear that from someone who is you know in the game industry one of my heroes um, and someone who had done something in terms of game storytelling that I think has, has yet to be surpassed uh, in Bioshock so so yeah, uh, that's probably the moment in the game that I'm most proud of. I certainly can't take full credit for it. It was a team effort uh, between myself and the narrative designer, Jonathan Mintz, and creative director and others, uh, and of course people who executed on it. But um, I'm happy to have been a part of that and, and to help solve that problem because it, it was a tough problem to solve. What keeps you the most kind of fired up and jazzed about working in video games still? Well, the fact that there's so much yet to be discovered. Mm. And what I mean by that is that we're still learning the kinds of stories that we can tell in games and the kind of ways we can make players feel in games with narrative and other, other aspects. So it's very dynamic and it's a very changing landscape. You, you, you know, when you walk into uh, to work in a movie studio, they have the same job titles, they use the same technology. If you're a gaffer on one movie, you're on one movie set, you're a gaffer on the next set will be the same job. But in, in games, it's like all over the place. Hmm. And when you work from studio to studio and on contract to contract, you, you're you're in a new environment and they have their own ways of doing things. Yes, there are some similarities, uh, some shared tools, but but there's so many differences, and so you never really get kind of in a rut. You can't. You can't afford to. And so, um, besides the fact that I love playing games, and I have for a very long time, um, I, I just love that, that um, unpredictable part of it and the fact that we are telling stories, having people experience stories in ways that they can't experience them in any other medium. Mm. Like uh, having, having emotions that are very difficult to evoke in another medium. For example, in, in Mua 2, uh, in the, in, in the, what, with regard to um, setting off Civil War, in the, in the Secret War comics, uh, you know, this, this S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Daisy Johnson, destroys Castle Doom and theoretically assassinates Lucia Von Bardis, the head of Latveria, right? Mm-hmm. But in the game, we, we got rid of that character and we have you do it. You're the one who destroys Castle Doom. It's your fault. And so making the player complicit and feel complicit, not just an observer, but a participant, is um, one of the things that we can do in games to make the player feel more involved and kind of want to undo the, the, the thing that they, we, we kind of made them do, this bad thing we forced <laughs> them to do. Um, so uh, those are the things that, those are just some of the things that we can do. And we're, like I said, we're still discovering uh, the kind of stories that can be experienced in, in games that are kind of, that are unique to, to that medium. So I, I love that. Was, I mean, working on Concrete Genie, was that, again, another new way to kind of explore narrative devices? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that you can create these, these uh, genies on the walls that will be your friends, and the idea of taking on the, the, um, the, the uh, subject of bullying, and um, not just reading about a kid being bullied, but you are being bullied. They're chasing you around town. They're pushing you down. They're shoving you in a dumpster. 
and and how how do we ever how do we get a player to come back from that and want to help them because that was the design of the game when i went in is that the team had decided that the bullies would bully you in the first part of the game and then the second part of the game you'd have to rescue them from these things that had happened and i was like how are we going to do that how are we going to get a player to want to do that mm-hmm. so that was the main it was one of the main things i i, I kind of tried to tackle with the team is how do we move the players emotionally from hating these bullies to wanting to help them and, and having that kind of redemptive uh, arc to it. And so that's a huge challenge and um, it was very rewarding. And, and what's really cool about working in games these days especially is that when I first started working in games, you would ship a game and you'd read the reviews and that would basically be the end of it. But but these days I can I can watch people playing the game on let's play videos on YouTube, I can see their reactions. Mm. I can see whether we got them to feel the way that we were trying to make them feel. I mean, I've seen people cry while playing Concrete Genie at the moments we were trying to break their heart. And, and that's hugely rewarding. And something that, that, you know, I really never got while I was working in comics. I loved working in comics, but I never got to see someone read something that, I was, that, I, that I'd worked on in front of me and watch their reactions. And, to, and see whether we made them feel the way we wanted them to feel. Yes, they would write letters to the editor, letters, you know, the letters pages and whatnot, but this is, um, this is really a great time to be in games because you can observe people actually reacting positively and negatively to what you did, and you can learn from that. So it's, it's hugely rewarding, and again, um, you know, when you walk in the door to a new project, you never quite know what you're going to be facing as a narrative designer or a writer, and that's half the fun of it. Do you like the, I mean, uh, this is going to sound more negative, but do you like the kind of the, the problem-solving kind of aspect of it as well? Trying to, as you said, kind of break down, how do we do this? How do we solve this fundamental question or problem so that it'll be more intuitive or, or work for the gamer themselves? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, I mean, obviously when you're attacking a puzzle like that, there are times when you get frustrated and you're not quite sure how you're going to do it. But then, and, and that's, that's true of any story problem. You, you know, when you're writing a, a comic book series or any traditional uh, form, you also will run into these narrative challenges that you're trying to figure out the solution to. And and for me, I generally solve them when I'm either driving or in the shower. Uh, <laughs> both times when I both times when I can't write down the solution somewhere. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it that that puzzle solving part of it is is really interesting to me, and it feels so good when you actually solve it. Of course, half the time in games you solve it, you walk into the office the next day and say, "I've solved it." And they say, oh, we changed that level anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and you're like, what? That's what I'm talking about, the, the changeable aspect of games. They're very iterative. And you are basically, um, the, the analogy I use for being a game writer is uh, you are basically uh, like a, a rodeo uh, you know, cowboy trying to hang on to a bull that is trying to buck you off. In other words, you're trying to just, just to hang on because the game in development is so changeable and your narrative has to continue to be married to it even as it's changing during mm. development, and and that's the that sometimes is is frustrating, but it also it also is uh, you know what keeps it interesting. You had said before when you were working in comics that you know there was that thrill of getting you know the, those pages in from the artist and kind of seeing it all kind of take shape on the page and seeing what they've done with it. Do you get that same level of thrill when you start seeing how the game actually is going to start looking when you see kind of the early renderings and how it's actually going to operate and look? I, I think that there's some of that. 
although it's, it usually looks pretty bad until right near the end. <laughs> it suddenly comes together. But the real thrill, the, the equivalent thrill uh, in games would be when you bring the voice actors in. Mm. And, and on a game where you have voice, uh, when you start hearing the lines you wrote being given life by actors who know what they're doing and who instantly legitimize your work and elevate it. And in some cases, many times, they have infused the lines with meaning that I didn't know was even in there when mm-hmm. I wrote them. And, and so that is like, when you ask most people who work with voice actors or, or performance capture actors, you'll, you'll often hear that that is one of the favorite parts of the process because once you have that voice um, and you begin dropping it in the game, suddenly it starts feeling like a, a real story and a real, a real game story. But also the characters start feeling real. Um, everything starts becoming more real and it's just so exciting. So that's probably the equivalent magic for me on the game side, I do love seeing the art and the, and the concept art and things like that come together too. It's all excellent stuff and the functionality, but, but that stuff tends to, like I said, it doesn't tend to look polished until the last 10% of the process, but the voice acting coming in and the performance capture coming in, uh, that is just the same feeling like, wow, like just can't wait for recording day. Just can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that brings up a question. Are you often there for recording sessions? Yeah, in some form, uh, in a good studio, they'll make sure that the writer or a narrative designer or someone who, who has had a hand in the writing and understands it is there, not to direct, although I have done some direction, but mostly to uh, be there to help with context and to make sure we get the, the reads that we need uh, because sometimes things that the, the director doesn't know about the game, like, for example, they don't know how far away the character is from the person they're speaking to. Hmm. And it, it, may, it may be variable. And so only the writer or the art designer would know that most likely. So they can say, no, no, that's, that's too loud. Uh, he's going to be really close to that or likely to be this close. So let, let's do three versions depending on where the player is. Hmm. So um, we, are often, we are often involved in that. And, you know, over the years I kind of picked up, um, you know, the, uh, some of the tactics and, and methods of good voice directors. So I can, I can kind of think my way through directing a voice session if I have to. But I, I really do um, really admire people who are good at handling. Of course, the voice actors themselves are fantastic, but the people who direct them also are uh, really unsung heroes because they are the ones who help them find their way to that perfect read. Hmm. Um, and and it's really an art um, that I have learned a little bit about, but I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert at it. Hmm. Well, Evan, again, thank you so much for um, taking so much time today and you know working through you know both your careers at marvel and also working in video game uh design and and writing it's been really interesting and uh thank you so much for spending the time with us absolutely it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it and um i'm looking forward to to seeing uh more hearing more of your podcast in the future i checked them out uh when i when you first contacted me because i wasn't i wasn't unfortunately aware of them but uh it's good stuff and i'm glad to be a part of it thanks for having me thank you so much all right adam